Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jennifer Kimball. She's an assistant professor, part of the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics at University of Minnesota. I'm going to talk about her work with breeding wild rice and other such other types of issues. So, Jennifer, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks, Richard, for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and then, uh, you know, why rice, why are you studying it? And, uh, you know, then we'll get into your current work. So, yeah, I'm a plant breeder by trade, which means that I primarily focus on developing new and improved cultivars uh, for crops. Specifically, I work with cultivated wild rice, which is a crop species that we grow up here in Minnesota and a little bit is grown in California as well. So we're a smaller, smaller industry, but uh, we've got a great group of, of growers. Uh, so I primarily work a lot with farmers, and that's one of the reasons that that I love this job. And why rice? What attracts you to it? Oh, so I got my... Besides, it can be uh, delicious. Yeah, yeah. Wild rice is is a super nutritious grain, and it's got a really nice, unique, nutty flavor. But I, after I graduated with my bachelor's in biology, I was in Ithaca, New York, and I at Ithaca College, and I jumped across the hill and started working at Cornell University. And I was working for Dr. Susan McCooch, who is white rice breeder and geneticist. And I was learning all about wild species of white rice and the diversity that is 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 there within those species. And I was just absolutely fascinated by it, captivated. And just fell in love with genetic diversity, all of the different traits and variation that you can see across the plant species. And then I went down to North Carolina for about 10 years to get my master's and my PhD. I was down in the South. I'm from New York. I never really acclimated well to the heat. I knew I wanted to be a plant breeder, and but I needed to get somewhere cold. And I also grew up in the Finger Lakes region of New York State, which there's tons of really beautiful, gorgeous lakes around there. And so this position popped up where I could breed in a cold environment. I could work on a species that's really closely related to white rice. It's more, it's like a cousin. And, you know, Minnesota is the state of 10,000 lakes. So I was able to get back to the lake life. So mm. Sort of this perfect, perfect situation for me. Yeah, I remember in the land of lakes, butter, that's a, you know, Minnesota land of lakes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So rice, I mean, I don't really know much about it. Does it have to be grown submerged in water in like a patty or yep. can different yeah. kinds of rice be grown differently? Yeah, no. Right now, wild rice, only it's um, we plant it on dry land just like you would any other crop. And then we flood immediately. Um, and those patties stay flooded um, roughly until the plant starts to flower and set seed. 
And then we start to drain those paddies to firm up the ground so we can get our mechanical harvesters, our combines in there um, to collect the seed. And how long does uh, does rice take to come to, well, to flower and then to produce the rice itself? How many grains are, are produced on each plant, et cetera? Yeah, so it typically takes about four months. We Here in Minnesota, we plant uh, roughly in May, and then we're harvesting early September or uh, mid-September, depending on the year. Every year, it's a different environment. And this is a plant that looks a lot like white rice. It has one main stem with a panicle um, on the top. And that's where we're going to get our main seed production. But the plant also tillers, so it sends out more shoots from the base of the plant and they will flower as well. So if you can think of white rice, kind of maybe looks a little like wheat or oats, that typical grass structure. I've heard that it's, um, I know it's very difficult to work it as a farmer, but maybe I'm thinking of harvesting rice by hand in China. Like, is it, is it a very difficult plant? So what's, what are some of the nuances of it? Oh, yeah. Um, it is a challenging crop to work with. You know, we this is a, a lowland crop, so it, it does have water and, and flooding that we have to control. And then there's also a lot of more environmental management, I think, because we really have to pay attention into what we're putting into the water when we're releasing it, making sure that, um, you know, we're, we're being as sustainable and environmentally friendly as possible. So, the industry itself has done a ton of work in this area, and I'm really proud um, to be working with them. One of the amazing things and really unique things about going on to a cultivated wild rice farm is it's flooded and there's all these dikes and tons of just so much diversity in plant life on these dikes and as well as there's water. So we get tons of waterfowl. I breed probably 10,000 tadpoles in my, in my patties every year. And we have snapping turtles and crabs. I mean, it's just the abundance of life and diversity that you see in uh, cultivated wild rice production systems is really unique because if you look across the landscape, uh, I think especially in the Midwest, the landscape's dominated by corn and soybean. And, and so we, we try to, to rotate crops as much as we can to benefit the soil and, and to maximize the yield for growers. But those are largely monocultures and typically of the same cultivar, which is All the plants within a cultivar are genetically identical. So you get this this monoculture landscape that, you know, doesn't have the diversity that can really benefit the environment and and the local landscape in a positive way. And I think that's one thing I absolutely love about working on wild rice. What are some of the uh, companion plants that can be grown maybe alongside rice or before and after? Or You you mentioned a lot of the animals that come there, which is great. What else? Yeah, so um, typically here in Minnesota, we're going to do, we do have rotation crops. There, That depends kind of where you are in the state, which different growing region in the state. Most of the growers uh, in the cultivated wild rice industry are in the northern part of the state. Um, wild rice really likes the cold, so it's my buddy in that sense. Yeah, so we, we do have rotation crops, and that is going to depend, again, like I said, on, on the region that we're growing in the state. Mostly it's soybeans, 
There's some peas that are grown, wheat, but yeah, I mean, since we are in the northern range of Minnesota and we're on some lowlands, lands, we have, we're limited, I think, in what rotation crops, but soybean in general is really great because it's got that nitrogen, that symbiotic relationship with nitrogen fixing bacteria. So when the growers rotate with soybeans and a patty is coming off of soybeans, it's actually, the soil is wonderful because it's gotten some of the the nitrogen um, already in in place uh, from, from growing soybeans. So soybean is just an absolutely excellent rotation crop in that sense. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. If you grew in um, warmer weather, would it attract mosquitoes to the water? It, you know, in the cold climate, does that save you from mosquitoes? And can the water be fouled by something? We Standing do. Water? Yeah, we do have mosquitoes sometimes. I think they probably have more problems with that in California because the environment is just, uh, you know, consistently warmer, I think. Here in northern Minnesota, you know, we got a pretty, pretty intense winter. I think it's negative six out there right now. And so I don't think we have as many problems with that. Yeah, I was wondering. Well, I mean, you plant, you said May and harvest in September. So what's, what's the temperature range around then? And again, what kind of uh, creatures hang out near the rice? Yeah, so in May, we're planting typically in 50, 60 degree Fahrenheit weather. And then in August, it's probably 70 maybe. So we really don't get, you know, June, July, we get some hot events, weather events, but typically we're, I think, much, much cooler uh, than than most of the country. So what are some of the, uh, what some of the research you're doing right now on rice? Are you trying to find, you know, hardier stocks or improve yield or, you know, what's the focus of your research? Yeah, so um, yield is always something that's really important to us. One thing that we are focusing on is uh, seed shattering. So all of the crops that we kind of typically know, uh, grain crops like our wheat, our soy, our, our wheat, our corn, oats, they have gone through a process of domestication where for thousands of years, farmers have basically selected the best plants that they have wanted for their environment, for their traits of interest. That that has led to the crops that we know today. Wild rice breeding only started roughly 60 years ago. So something like corn or wheat that's been, you know, selected upon for thousands of years, we only have 60. Um, so we're still focusing on some of those important domestication traits. Um, and seed shattering in particular is a very important one because. So what, what is that? What happens? 
Yeah, so in wild rice grows naturally in the Great Lakes region of North America. And basically seed shatter in, in, in nature is a natural seed dispersal mechanism. It's how, you know, plants continue to populate in our natural environments. But in agricultural systems, we don't want that. We want the grain to stay on the plants long enough for our growers to go in with those combines. If we have shattering in our varieties, that means that grains falling to the grounds before the growers can harvest it. And that's lost money. That's lost food. And we don't want that. So we're really trying to focus on seed shattering. So does the seed, the seed literally like explode and spray, you know, other other seeds all over the place? So what does the shattering look so like? Does you, it just crack and the winds take it? Yeah. So if you think about really any type of grass, you know, white rice, let's just say it's got a a panicle or a seed head, and there's lots of lots of seeds on that. And if you take away those seeds, there's a basic panicle or seed head structure, right? The stems that are holding together, holding the seeds onto the onto the seed head. And what happens is as seeds are maturing on that panicle, genes get turned on and a what is called an abscission layer is formed right at the base of the seed. And what that is, is it's a layer of cells. And so that layer, it's a thin layer of cells and that layer of cells forms. And then something, something in the pathway ends up killing those cells. And that is when that abscission layer deteriorates and it actually causes the grain to fall from the seed head. So if we can find the gene, so one thing that I'm, I'm looking at is to identify those genes in that seed shattering pathway. If we can find a different variant or a mutation in that pathway that, that, um, it doesn't turn on that abscission layer, then you don't have seed shattering. So we're trying to shut down those pathways. Is it a matter of timing or is it a matter of the formation of this layer at all, which allows seed shattering? It's both. Yeah. So um, we, we've done a study where we have shown we've improved seed shattering, but we haven't fixed the trait, which means we haven't made it consistent across all of our germplasm. Um, so there's still variability in the trait. But we do know that wild populations of wild rice, they're going to start shattering anywhere from 10, 10 to 12 days after the seed starts to set and mature. In cultivated wild rice, so in our cultivated germplasm, we've moved that and shifted that to 35 days. So there's a much bigger window now from when seed shattering begins in cultivated wild rice compared to its wild counterparts. But we still do have shattering at those 35 days. And that's where we're still getting some of that abscission layer turned on. So I think we've delayed it a little bit, but we still, we still need to identify the genes that are, that are conferring that, that pathway and in, in the formation of that abscission layer. Is anyone studying uh, the molecular clocks? that control various things happening in plants, you know, how many years it takes them to, to go to fruit for fruit plants, you know, et cetera, those kinds of things to speed up or slow down various processes in plants. Yeah, I don't specifically work with molecular clocks, but I have been working to incorporate molecular base breeding approaches. 
into the program. Again, this is something that a lot of other crop species have a really big head start when it comes to having the resource, the, the genetic and the genomic resources available to do some of this molecular-based breeding. So I'm focused on, for example, identifying a gene that I know leads to or that I know leads to shattering resistance in wild rice. If I can find that gene and then I can track it, I can use a molecular marker, which is just a short sequence nucleotides of bases, basically, that are a part of all of our genetic code. I can use those those short sequences, those molecular markers, to basically track what plants have have disease or have seed shattering resistance. And that's called marker-assisted selection. So what I can do is I can take that marker, I can grow a bunch of plants up in a greenhouse, I can genotype them with that marker, and then I know what plants are going to have more seed shattering resistance. And so then I rogue out or I eliminate all the plants that don't. And sometimes with a lot of traits, that's important because you're, you're actually tracking the gene. You're not tracking a phenotype or a, you know, you're not making visual assessments. And so that can really speed up the plant breeding process. So the plant breeding process that you typically, depending on your crop that you're working on, it's going to take eight to 12 years to develop a new variety. Plant breeding is a really long endeavor. And it takes significant inputs to, to develop these varieties. So marker-assisted selection and using these molecular-based breeding approaches is a way to speed up that process. So we can get, get these new cultivars and varieties out to our growers as quickly as we can. You know, our, our environments are changing rapidly. Our landscapes are changing rapidly. And when it takes 8 to 10 to 12 years to release a cultivar, Breeders really need to be looking ahead to what's the next problem while we're also trying to speed up the breeding process and get new cultivars out to our growers as quickly as possible. How many cultivars in a given field are used? It, it sounds like one is a bad idea. I mean, if they're similar, why not? Uh, you know, if, I know you can't talk about corn and soy and all the other stuff. Maybe you can, but why don't breeders have multiple different types of cultivars that are all similar to increase disease resistance and pest resistance, et cetera? Yeah, so that sort of goes beyond a little bit what we do as plant breeders because it, that's more of management of the agricultural landscape. So, you know, how are growers picking and choosing their cultivars? In wild rice, we have such a small industry, we typically only have about two to three cultivars grown at once at a single time. But wild rice cultivars are a little bit, they're very unique in agriculture in that they're open pollinated, which means, and they're, and they're highly heterogeneous, which means every plant is unique. No one plant is the same, but they're all together a population that is better than the previous cultivar that was released. And that's different from other crop species like corn, like wheat, oats, soybean. They are inbred lines. And so they are each plant of that cultivar that you grow out is going to be genetically identical. So that's, again, just why I highlight some of the really cool 
aspects, I think, of cultivated wild rice is because we don't have that monoculture. And I think that helps with a lot of difference in environmental a lot of different environmental conditions where you can have different soil types, different climates, you can have different pests. Um, if you have a diverse line like that cultivar that's out there on the landscape, it has more ability to adapt and respond to different environments. An inbred line, say of corn, if a breeder in Iowa breed something specific for that environment, it might do fantastic and it might yield really, really well. And so there's different aspects of different crops and their production systems that need to be taken into account uh, when, when you think about these types of questions. So what would be a huge breakthrough in rice? I've, I've heard the, um, I guess the photosynthetic efficiency of rice plants is 1% and there's some people that are trying to get it up to, let's say, 1.5% which would be like a 50% possible increase in yield. And what, what are some of the big um, possible movers of rice that you think would really improve it quite a bit for people? Yeah, well, I mean, I know for, for the growers, you know, we're always looking to yield. We're always looking to reducing that seed shattering. But we also look to improve disease resistance as well as, you know, the ability for a cultivar to withstand different weather conditions. And so... You know, disease, improving disease resistance, for example, would reduce the amount of pesticides, say, that a crop has, that a farmer has to apply to his crop. So in plant breeding, while we focus, I think, primarily on yield, we also, there's a really environmental sustainability component to the work that we do, trying to reduce the inputs, limit the environmental degradation effects that that do come about from agriculture like any system there's inputs and outputs and yeah i mean i think i think we're going to have i think as we begin to explore the use of molecular based breeding in wild rice where we can really hone in and target our traits of interest i think we're going to see really well i hope we see really pretty big, substantial increases in yields. I also work with marketers and cultivated wild rice here in Minnesota has a very large export market, specifically to the European Union. And the European end users really want longer seed. That's that's something that they're interested in. So that's a primary target of my program as well. So something, so we're not just thinking about growers, we're thinking about marketers, we're thinking about end users. I also have this really unique opportunity as we're domesticating wild rice and we're optimizing it for this agricultural patty production system. We can focus on nutritional quality. Sometimes in breeding, when you're focused on, you have your primary trait of interest, say it's yield, sometimes there's indirect selection that happens. And what that means is that you don't realize it, but you're, well, maybe you do or you don't realize it, but as you're improving one trait, you could be harming or reducing the efficiency or quality of another trait. And so something that's happened in plant breeding is over the years, as we've pushed yields in a lot of contexts that has meant increased seed size. 
And sometimes when you increase seed size rapidly and, you're, and we're not paying attention to how we're increasing that seed size, sometimes we end up losing some of the nutritional content of those seeds and we replace it with starch. So we have this unique opportunity in cultivated wild rice to ensure that as we're, we're developing new and improved varieties, that we're maintaining that, that really good nutritional content. Because wild rice mm. nutritionally outcompetes most grain crops that are on the market. So what, what kind of nutrients does it have that, that uh, regular white rice or brown rice doesn't have? It's comparable or beats brown rice in tons of different categories like antioxidants, protein levels, you know, different micronutrients that are important for the body. Um, wild rice has a really large lysine content, which is a limiting factor in a lot of our grain crops. And so there's some really unique opportunities, I think, and some phenomenal nutritional characteristics of wild rice that I think uh, put it in a really unique position in the marketplace to allow this this industry to continue to grow. Okay. Um, one other question is, I don't know, it, it seems like uh, rice cultivation may be very difficult. I don't know how much, like how much do you get off each stem or each plant? You know, if I want a side of rice with my meal, how much did it take to produce that? Yeah, so like one side serving is probably going to be half and half of a plant, maybe. About, I've never really thought about it that way. It's super interesting. I always love meeting and talking to new people because they ask me questions that I would just never like think of. And that's a great one. But yeah, I bet a side of rice is about half of a plant. So we produce, okay. you know, I think it's something on the scale of 9 million pounds per year of, of wild rice. That in comparison to other crops is very, very small. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, interesting. No, I just thought it would be like a miserable type of event to harvest so many plants just to get a little bit of rice, but it sounds like the, each plant produces quite a bit, which is good. Yeah. And I always I always marvel how cheap a lot of uh, produce is when, you know, some of it takes years and it just seems like it should be a lot more expensive. Yeah. And wild rice, well, you know, it is fairly more expensive than, you know, your average white rice or something like that because it's only, you know, other crops because it's only grown in Minnesota and in small regions in California. So it's a pretty small crop. In the grocery stores, you can probably get a pound of cultivated wild rice. It's going to cost, depending on where you are, I think anywhere between 5 and $8 a pound, which, you know, white rice, I can't think off the top of my head how much it would cost, but I, it's probably 3 or $4 per pound. And then hand harvested wild rice is going to probably be somewhere between eleven and fifteen dollars a pound. Yeah, where where um, what do you think is the best place for people to see uh, the papers you've written and the research you're working on? Where can they go? Google Scholar. I always recommend you just can type into the Google search engine Google Scholar, and that takes you to a specific page or function app. I don't know really what to call it. Um, a website on, and it's called Google Scholar, and that's where it filters your searches for scientific publications. So, you know, publications that are coming out in peer reviewed journals. 
So I think that's always a good place to go. Anybody can go and onto my website, keep our website up to date as well. Okay. Well, very good. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about rice. I knew nothing about it before this. It's a, it's a very interesting subject. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. And I just want to, uh, you know, encourage everyone to, to continue to learn more about where your food comes from. Thank a farmer if you, if you can. And, you know, don't be afraid to, to get some dirt under your fingernails and grow some good food. It's a good chance to connect with nature and, and, uh, you can get your food supply right in your own backyard. Actually, that leads to one last question. Um, sure. for someone that, that wants to do a little bit of homesteading, would you recommend they try to grow like one rice plant in a, in a pot with some water or is it really difficult to grow? That's going to be really challenging. Yeah. I mean, if you have a pond, you can gather some natural, some wild rice from natural populations, put it into a mud ball and then throw it out into your pond. And next year you should have some, some good wild rice stands. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.